Then one of the criminals who were hanged, there were two that were criminals that were put on crosses on each side of the Lord Jesus at that time, one on one side and one at the other, and they are also crucified at this moment, which fulfills scripture because the Bible says he was numbered with the transgressors, and so here he is with those who are recognized as criminals, and he's numbered with them, being crucified with them. Now, verse 39 of Luke 23. Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you're the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other, answering, rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? For we are undergoing, are you undergoing the same conclusion or same death as he is experiencing? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. As we considered last week, the Lord Jesus has been crucified. And as he's nailed between these two individuals who are identified as criminals, as he's being nailed there to the cross, we find him, as we found last week, interceding for those who are participating in this act. He prays for them. He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. We noted last week that there is recorded in the gospel accounts occasions which different individuals came to the Lord Jesus in faith, seeking a provision from Him, or seeking healing from Him, or a touch from His life, or to be renewed in His presence. And the Lord Jesus met this movement of faith on their part with a proclamation. He said, Your sins are forgiven you. And whenever he did that, that caused a stir to all those that were listening around because it was a word of absolution. It was a word in which the Lord was saying to them, your guilt and your sins have been forgiven and they've been dismissed. And it was, as those listening understood, a divine word. These individuals who came to him didn't have some ongoing relationship with him. They hadn't had some stored up direct sins that they'd committed against him. And yet the Lord Jesus offers forgiveness to them of all their sins. The only one who can do that is God, because ultimately the one that we sin against in every occasion, whoever it is you sin against, ultimately the one you sin against, first of all, is God himself. And so God stands behind every sin, and God stands as the ultimate object of every sin that we commit. It's a breaking of his law, and it's a defiance of his will, and God ultimately is the one who holds the keys to our forgiveness and our absolution. The Lord Jesus offers that to these who come to them, and they would say things like, well, How can he forgive other people of their sins? There's only one who can forgive sins, and that's God alone. Of course, they were right. They were correct in their confusion. But now, as the Lord Jesus is hanging upon the cross, those who are contributing to his death are surrounding him and engaged in this activity, and the Lord Jesus doesn't pray a prayer or issue a word of absolution. He doesn't declare that they've been forgiven. Instead, he prays or intercedes that they would be forgiven. He actually is praying that they might experience what is required of them in order that they might gain God's forgiveness. In other words, that they might reach the condition in which that forgiveness could flow to them. Because they're ignorant of their sins, they must realize their sins. And then they must repent of their sins. And then they must turn in faith from their sins and trust in the one who alone can give them forgiveness. In other words, this cry that God might bring them to forgiveness is a cry that they would come to the point one day of understanding their need and understanding their situation and their sin. They might come to the point of repentance 
and faith and trust in Him. Jesus is praying that a knowledge might come to them to give to them what is necessary in order that they might turn into God and receive His forgiveness. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And it's a defense, but in the defense, it's also a plea with God to change the conditions that put them in the state of unforgiveness. They might know these things and know what they're doing. And we spoke last week of how Peter then got up in response in part to this prayer of the Lord Jesus and how he proclaimed to those in Jerusalem what they had done, that they with lawless hands had put to death the Prince of Life. And he preached this message pointing out to them their profound guilt, and they were in that point of understanding. He made the case before them that this was the Messiah. This was the Son of God. And as they came to understand this and understand what they'd done, they cried out, Men and brethren, what must we do? They were cut to the heart, we're told. And many believed, and it was in response, as we said in part in answer to what the Lord Jesus had prayed here, Now, as we've moved further on in our story, in our account, the Lord Jesus is hanging, nailed to the cross. He's hanging before a crowd that's gathered around him from all Jerusalem and also from the religious leaders that are there. And we're told that the crowd and the religious leaders in particular began to sneer at him and mock him. And they said things like, save yourself. If you're the son of God, come down from the cross. And they said, he saved others. He can't save himself. We read that he said, let him save himself if he's the Christ, the chosen one of God. And again, we're told they said things like, if he's the king of Israel, let the Messiah, king of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe in him. And then we're told, following up upon the mocking that takes place among the leaders and the crowd that are following along with him, that the Roman soldiers as well began to mock him. And they began to chime in with their own mocking and say, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. And they began to say the same types of things. And finally, Matthew records that these two thieves that are hanging next to him also begin to reproach him. And Matthew says they reproached him in the same manner. In other words, they followed suit with those on the ground surrounding them with the same insults. But I think their words are a bit different. Luke actually points out that in the railing of these thieves, there was a little bit of a turn. The other one said, save yourself. You've saved others. You can't save yourself. If you're really the Messiah, come down from the cross. But Luke tells us what one of the thieves at least said. He said, if you're the Messiah, save yourself and us. If you're who you say are, save yourself and us. These thieves, these criminals, are suffering as they're on their own crosses. And they feel the mocking that's being laid at the Lord Jesus upon themselves. Here is the one who's been rumored as the one who has come and rescued and delivered the oppressed. And are they not oppressed themselves in this very moment? And he's doing nothing with them but dying alongside of them. And they're mocking hints at their own frustration, at their own helplessness, and the agonizing condition in which they're in. And they come late to this scorn and this mocking, but they join in as well. They're angered under their own misery, and they're lashing out at God by lashing out at Jesus. Here's what we can take from these accounts of this mocking that takes place at this moment. And here's just a few things that we want to store away in our minds to put this and frame what we're going to be considering this morning and frame it all for ourselves. And the first one is this, is that there is among the crowd and all those gathered around the cross, there is some knowledge of the purported power of the Messiah. 
and there is some knowledge of what the Lord Jesus has claimed to be the title that belongs to him for those that are around the cross. They know, they understand that this is one who not only was rumored to be the Messiah, but that himself has allowed that rumor to go forward. And there's also a knowledge that Jesus, as Messiah, has also indicated that he is the Son of God, that he is the king that God has appointed to rule over the Jews. We can also see that there is knowledge among the Roman soldiers of the traditions of the Jews and the power of the coming king, that he had power over death itself and that he was going to set up a rule over all of the earth, that his kingdom was before him and it would advance throughout all the world. And again, we can also take from these words that there was a certain knowledge of the miracles that the Lord Jesus had before this time performed. He saved others. He saved others. He can't save himself. They had a knowledge, but here's what we learn from this. Knowledge of is not belief in. They had a knowledge of, but they had no belief in Jesus Christ. And so they mocked. It's interesting to note here that their mocking mirrors the very temptations that Satan brought to the Lord Jesus when he endured his trial of temptation after his baptism, when he began his earthly ministry. You remember that Satan took the Lord Jesus in his hunger and said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to be turned into loaves of bread. And then he took him up on the Temple Mount and he said, If you're the Son of God, cast yourself down. Because God will watch over you and God will protect you and won't allow your foot to be dashed. Now these voices are mocking the Lord Jesus and these voices are inspired by Satan himself. If you're the Son of God, if you're the Christ, if you're the King, save yourself. If he is who he says he is, let God save him. Those are the things that are being said here. But here's what we need to understand. Jesus has prayed for these very mockers. He's prayed that they would come into a knowledge of their sins. He's prayed that they would discover who he was and what they are doing and that their ignorance would be vanished from their minds. And in that moment, they would discover what it is they needed for their forgiveness and they would find forgiveness. He's prayed, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. And even as Christ hung on the cross, God the Father began to answer his prayer. One of these thieves who is engaged in this mocking comes past the point of his anger and his frustration at the agony that's taking place in his body and that he's going through. And he comes to a realization. He comes to a fresh comprehension or understanding or insight. Maybe he is persuaded as he watches the silent eloquence of the Lord Jesus as he suffers beside him. Maybe he is persuaded as he hears the realized expression of the Lord Jesus praying for the forgiveness of those who are crucifying him and calling out to God as Father. And he recognizes an intimacy in Christ's voice that he does not know himself. Maybe he has in this moment a recognition that this moment is bringing to the surface all of the wickedness in himself. And all of the wickedness in the other thief beside him. And he sees percolating to the top in this moment all of the darkness and wickedness of the crowd around. But at the same time it stands in contrast to the purity and sinlessness of the one who's hanging beside him. And he's overwhelmed by it all. And he begins to think through it all and calculate it all. And 
the coarseness of their own mocking, the sinfulness of their own past seems to be exuding out from them in their angry suffering. And in contrast, there's one beside him who reflects from his wounds the radiance of purity and innocence. And he knows it wasn't natural. He knows that this is something supernatural. Whatever it is, God opens the eyes of this criminal to see what sinlessness looks like. And in that very moment, he sees how sinful he is. Let's look at how God answers this prayer that the Lord Jesus prayed. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they do. Father, bring them to an understanding so that they might receive your forgiveness. Let's see how God answers this prayer. And the first thing that we should note here is that the first thing that this thief begins to comprehend that brings him, brings him to receive God's forgiveness. The first thing is he sees or comprehends or comes to understand or becomes aware of who it is that's beside him on the cross, that this is the Christ, that this is the King, that this is the Son of God. The first thing that must come in answering the prayer that we might come into God's forgiveness is there must be a revelation. There must be a revelation of God to the individual. This is, by the way, less of a discovery on this thieves' part than a revelation of God to a dying sinner. Do you remember this story? You'll find it in Matthew, you'll find it in Mark, you'll find it also in Luke. The Lord Jesus is with his disciples. He's actually two-thirds of the way into his ministry with his disciples. He turns to his disciples and said, who do the people say that I am? Well, they say that you're a prophet. They say that maybe you're John the Baptist. But who do you say that I am, he says. Who do you say that I am? And immediately, Peter responds, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And listen to the Lord Jesus' words to Peter. The Lord Jesus says to Peter, Peter, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father which is in heaven. Peter, you didn't come to this understanding by your own natural analytical abilities. My Father has made this known to you. Now consider this. This is two-thirds of the way into the time in which they've witnessed Christ's ministry and Christ's life. And they've been observing it. By this time, they've seen him heal multiple sick people. They've seen him give sight to multiple people who are blind. They've seen him raise the dead. They've witnessed him on at least two different occasions multiply food to feed a vast array of people. Peter has seen the Lord Jesus walking on water and walked out on water to meet him. He's gone through all those experiences. He's witnessed the great teaching of the Lord Jesus before crowd after crowd after crowd. He's heard the great Sermon on the Mount proclaimed. He's witnessed and walked alongside the one who is sinless and righteous in every way. Not only for a few days or for an hour, but for months and for years now. He's seen these things. But still... The final conclusion of who Jesus was, that he is the Son of God, the Savior, this had to be revealed to him from God. The final note, the final point of conclusion as to who Jesus Christ was, wasn't going to come upon Peter by gathering together all of that data and all that information and simply adding it all up. The Spirit of God and God himself, God the Father, had to come and in that moment, make himself known and make this truth known to Peter. Did you know that? That the Holy Spirit of God is at work in the world today communicating to the consciences of humans the truth of who Jesus Christ is? We suppress that truth and we push that truth away and we push it away with mocking and we make the name a swear word and a joke, but it all reveals that it's being pressed upon us. It all reveals that it's there. That the Spirit of God, God Himself, is working to press upon individuals the revelation and the truth of who the Lord Jesus Christ is. And so, the same was true for us. 
Yes, we have the record of his life. Yes, we have the story of his miracles. Yes, we have the apologetic of his resurrection, a wonderful apologetic of his resurrection. And those who were unbelievers who became believers and those who had moved out in that belief and that knowledge to the ends of the earth and sacrificed their own lives in proclaiming the central fact that Jesus Christ had risen from the dead. But beyond that knowledge, what we have above everything else is a revelation from God. God, by his spirit, must bring to us the final note of conclusion as to who the man Jesus Christ is. And when he does, what we realize is, this is the Savior. This is the Messiah. This is the King. Here in our text is a man who is struggling to die against a body that's struggling to live. And he's in anguish and agony because of it. And he's suffering on a cross, and next to him is another man who is marred so terribly that his humanity is barely recognizable, and he's marred in weakness, dying in a failing and suffering body himself. He is seeing the Lord Jesus at his weakest point. Through this whole occasion, through all that's taken place, let us assume that maybe he is nearby in the place of judgment of the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus has uttered not a word, but remains silent through it all. He's gone out as a lamb before his shearers is dumb. He sees Christ in all of his weakness, failing to be able to carry his own cross. Others had to carry it for him. He's coming at a point and he's entering into an engagement with the Lord Jesus Christ at a moment in which darkness is falling all around him. It's the point at which Christ's own disciples, who had been with him for three or four years, ran and hid from him, filled with doubt. Actually, what do we read as the testimony of the disciples following the resurrection of Jesus Christ, before that he knows that he's risen from the dead. You find it in in Luke chapter 24, the next chapter over. They are speaking on the road as they're wandering away. Jesus is alongside two of them that are walking away from Jerusalem, inquiring as to why they're so downfallen and what's gone on in the city. And they speak of the Lord Jesus, and this is what they say of him. They say, we had hoped that he had been the one who would redeem Israel. Which means we no longer think that We're in doubt now of whether we were right or whether we've been wrong. We're thinking now we clearly made a mistake and got it wrong. And before the crucifixion, before the death and struggling and dying of the Lord Jesus, they were filled with doubt. But it's in that exact moment, in that dark moment, in which this thief comes to an understanding of who Jesus is. The Spirit of God reveals this to him. This is the Messiah. This is the king of Israel next to me. This is the son of God. That is a miracle. That is a wonderful revelation of God to the heart of a person. That is God's first step in answering the prayer that the Lord Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And it began with the thief on the cross. From that revealed knowledge, there comes something else. The next thing that comes is repentance. And so there's a word that the thief proclaims, and he proclaims it to the other thief. It's the only thing that we know that the thief ever did in his life that was good. He's giving a warning to the other thief. The other thief is railing against the Lord Jesus. If you're the Christ, save yourself and us. Get us out of this fix if you're the Savior. The other is saying, listen to the words of warning that this thief gives to him. Do you not even fear God? seeing you are under the same condemnation, and we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. 
But this man has done nothing wrong? What's this? This man, at this moment in time, is experiencing about the most cruel death that's been conceived by other human beings. He's being crucified in a sadistic manner. It's an experience that makes a mockery of justice. It's an exaggerated form of justice against criminals in order that those looking on might be filled with fear not want to come close to approaching anything that they had done, that they might conform to the strong hand of the Romans. It's the most ghastly manner in which you can put another individual to death. This man is receiving it. He is being tortured and humiliated at this very moment in this very loathsome way. But this thief has come in this very moment to see Jesus and to see him for who he is. And in the presence of the Lord Jesus... He not only sees the sinless one, but he sees his full sinfulness. And in that moment, he has no argument against the way he's suffering. He has no argument against what God has allowed to take place in his life. Prior to this, they're frustrated and angered at what their condition is. And the mockery that one who has been told to be a deliverer of people is not delivering them, but dying next to them. How ironic, not only to suffer for your sins, but to suffer in your sins next to somebody who has been told to be the deliverer of oppressed people? The misery and the pain and anger. By the way, I don't know how you feel when you hurt yourself, what the mood that comes upon you is, but my mood is usually anger at first. You know, I'm angry at it. I I don't like it. I look at what it is I can hit back, which sometimes you hurt yourself a second time because you swing at whatever hurts you and you hit the pole again a second time with your hand or whatever it is. It's angry. But here... No anger, no excuses, just repentance. He is suffering as we are suffering, but there's a difference, he's saying. We are getting what we deserve. We're sinners and we deserve this, this agony, this misery, what we are going through. This is just and fitting for us, for we are great sinners. And do you know what that is? That's repentance. No excuses, no complaints, no claiming extenuating circumstances. I'm a sinner. and God is just to set his judgment upon me and to use whom he will to exact that justice upon me. That's repentance. And in the presence of Jesus' true righteousness, recognizing who Jesus is, he sees his true sinfulness and who it is that he should fear. That God will call for an answer for our sins. And he acknowledges it. That's repentance. Next, having repented, we see the next part of the answer is faith. He then turns to the Lord Jesus and he says to the Lord Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come in your kingdom. Remember me when you come in your kingdom. And I think the word there is in your kingdom. This man recognizes the promise of resurrection life that has been made to his people by God himself through God's word. He's dying, but now at this very moment, he claims the promise that Job claimed. You know, it's, it's understood that the book of Job is likely the first book or the earliest book that was written in all of Scripture. And this is what Job said when Job was in the midst of his suffering. He says in Job 19, 25 through 27, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed... Yet in my flesh, that is in my skin, I will see God. Now what's he saying? I know my Redeemer lives, that he will stand upon the earth, and that when I die, 
and when my skin is destroyed, yet I will be resurrected, so that in my flesh I will see my Redeemer, God. I will see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes behold, and not another. The thief also has this understanding and this hope. He understands as well that the King of Israel, the Messiah of Israel, will come at the end of the present age, and he will establish an unending age and rule upon the earth one day. He'll bring to an end all that's taking place in this hour and this moment and all the suffering and all the power that Rome is expressing around him as he's being crucified. And he'll overthrow all these earthly powers and he'll reign one day in his kingdom. And He turns to the Lord Jesus who is dying next to him and says, you are the redeemer. You shall come one day in your kingdom power to rule upon this earth. You are the son of God the God of the living and not the dead. When you come in your kingdom power, remember me. Remember me. And do you know what that is? That's faith. It's faith. Jesus, you are the one who has an answer for all of history and all of life, and you're the only one who has an answer for me. Remember me in the day when you bring your answer to this world. That's what he's praying. He doesn't understand at that moment the answer is being provided. But he's praying in this way, it's faith. In the words of this man to the other thief, and then the words that he spoke to the Lord Jesus, we see an answer to the prayer that the Lord Jesus prayed when at first he was being nailed to the cross. God gives to his son in the midst of the crucifixion this wonderful gift of the first fruits of his very prayers. I'll give you the thief next to you. He'll come to understand who you are in your suffering He'll repent. He'll believe in you. How wonderful, how precious that this thief saw in the one suffering next to him and perceived him to be the king and the savior. A hardened criminal who in a short while is converted from a mocker to the lone confessor of Christ around the cross. In that dark hour, the light shines through of others who will come in days ahead and God gives this gift to the Son. This is repentance, and this is faith, and this is the condition upon which God's forgiveness flows out. And God has granted it to this man in answer to Christ's prayer. Now, oftentimes I think we make the mistake of identifying with the Lord Jesus on the cross, but we're not supposed to. We're supposed to identify with the mockers that gather around the cross. We're supposed to identify with all the sinners that are gathered round that he prayed for, we're meant not to relate to Jesus on the cross. Our identity lies with the mockers and the thieves, what it is that God has brought us to by his grace and by his mercy. Now I want you to hear what the Lord Jesus' response is to all of this. These are the words of Christ that we want to focus in on here just quickly. Jesus says, assuredly, the word is amen. It's so be it. It's Our Savior's amen. We pray with amen. Lord, give me this, and Lord, provide this for us, and amen, so be it. I I leave it at your feet. And the Lord Jesus has his own amens. Amen, he says. I say to you this day, you will be with me in paradise. 
the first words of the Lord Jesus on the cross, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, is a word of intercession. They're the words of a man who is a righteous and sinless man who is yet mediating for sinful men and mediating to God and standing between them. This is Jesus Christ, the man, saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. That's a word of intercession. But these next words that he proclaims are words of absolution. They're words of forgiveness. They're words of dismissing guilt and sin. And they're the words of God as he's dying on the cross. Declaring, releasing the man free from all his sins. The dying thief asked for a far off day when Christ might return and remember him in mercy. And Jesus responds to him and says, not on a far off day, today, this day, now. You're going to be with me in heaven. It's a prophecy, by the way, and it's a promise. When you were crucified, oftentimes it would take four days for you to come to your death. It was a slow and cruel and tormented death. And the Lord Jesus says, not for us. Your suffering will soon be past. Today, here's the promise, you'll be with me. Here's the prophecy, you'll die today. Your suffering is going to end today. Here's the promise, you're going to be with me in paradise. When we pray that God would forgive us of our sins, when we repent and turn to the Lord Jesus and seek his cleansing and his forgiveness, this desire for forgiveness is something more than just easing our conscience. It's not simply eradicating some deep entrenched guilt in our lives. It's more than the removal of a burden or a weight to be released from us through a confession that we make. You know, there are individuals who confess some terrible deed they've done and and they feel good for a moment because it just feels good that the secret is out. And it's more for us than that. It's more than being released from these things. It's about... The distance that our sins have created between us and God being removed. It's about that barrier being taken away. It's about being with the Lord Jesus, holding fellowship with Him. Absolution is our step into reconciliation with God, a God who loves us and who made us for Himself and for His life. And that's what forgiveness and God's dismissal of our guilt and absolution brings to us. And that's what the thief realized. And I'm comforted when we look at this story. I'm comforted that few individuals knew about this event. Mark doesn't record it. Matthew doesn't record it. Luke alone records this event. Few individuals probably heard it and understood it. Maybe just a few. Maybe those who are crowding nearest the cross heard these words that were expressed. And I find that particularly comforting and encouraging and I find it encouraging because there are individuals that we pray for and we long to see come to the Savior and we don't know the condition or state of their spiritual life all the way up to the point of death. We have no story to tell of whether they actually really, we know they know the truth. We know that we've proclaimed it to them. We know that we've talked to them about Jesus. We know they have the knowledge of, but we also know that the record of life is they have no belief in Jesus Christ. They come to that point of death and there's a great sorrow on our part because we don't know what's happened to them and where they've gone and what their response was. Yet we're not still without some form of hope if we understand this story. Uh, Somehow God can get through and God can make himself known. If God can reveal and open the eyes of the thief at that moment to see Christ for who he is in the throes of death and the anguish of crucifixion, God can speak to them in the midst of their failing hours and that's encouraging and that's hopeful and Lord, we'll have to leave that with you. 
the same time, I have to say there's a warning in this. Just one thief repented. There's no record that the other thief came to himself or came to an understanding. There's no promise that in the last breaths, you'll get a clear sight of Jesus in that moment. The call is to respond to him now. It's to recognize now that he alone can absolve and forgive those of sins who repent and place their faith completely in him. That's God's condition to be met. These first three words, and I'm just going to take a few more moments just to pass on to the words that Lord Jesus speaks after these. The first three words that we read from the cross all come as Christ is looking outward to those around him. They're words actually that come to us. The first is a word of intercession. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. The second is a word of absolution and promise. This day you'll be with me in paradise. You've been forgiven. Your guilt has been removed. There's nothing in between you and I. This day we'll be together. The last word is the word that he gives in John chapter 19, verses 26 and 27. I like to believe that this is the word he carries on to us, his people who have pledged our life to him. All his intercessions are for us and So we find him and we're forgiven and oh, he absolves us and cleanses us and washes us and so nothing between me and my Savior we're we're reconciled to him but then he goes on providing for us. In John 19, 26 and 27, we read this. Jesus now is still on the cross. When Jesus therefore saw his mother, his eyes now turn from the thief When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, that would be John, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. This is a word of provision. We could marvel that when the Lord Jesus was being nailed to the cross, he prayed out these wonderful prayers of intercession that these individuals might reach the ground and condition of receiving God's forgiveness. And we might marvel that in the midst of his torment and his anguish, he provides this this divine decree of absolution to the thief who is dying next to him and that he was going to be with him in paradise. But then again, we also reason to ourselves, is that not why he came? Didn't he come for sinners? Didn't he go to the cross that they might be forgiven and cleansed and have life with them? Isn't that the whole purpose? And so to some extent, although it's marvelous and wonderful, we reason in our mind it makes sense. In fact, this is what all of redemptive history was moving towards. The Bible says of the Lord Jesus that he was the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. God was planning this. God was designing this way of salvation for us. He was delivered up, we're told, by the determined foreknowledge of God. By God's decree and God's counsel and God's plan. This was God's understanding. And so, understanding that, we might see that there is a progressive unfolding of this hour and this moment and this reality and this provision all throughout the revelation of the Bible. We see him revealed as that lamb that was provided for Adam and Eve as skins to clothe them when they realized that they were unrighteous. We see it in the offering that is intimated that Abel brought before God that God was pleased with. We see it offered now and expressed for the family in Egypt as they're escaping. Each family is given a Passover lamb. And here's a lamb not only for a man, but now there's a lamb for a family. And then we see before Mount Sinai the lamb and the sacrificial system that's being offered up for the nation. And then we see John the Baptist seeing the Lord Jesus saying, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And we see him as a lamb for the whole world. The Bible is progressively 
veiling before us the purpose of the Lord Jesus coming, the purpose for this hour and this moment of crucifixion. And all of human history is channeling down to this narrow point of the cross. All of the judgment that sin deserves and all the accumulation of wrath that comes upon sin and and all of its misery and all of its pain and all of its torment is all channeling in, accumulated to this point and this moment through all, all of history and all of God's righteous judgments are coming with force upon Christ as He agonizes upon the cross and His suffering is unimaginable. It is a concentrated hell that He is enduring on the cross for our sakes. In the midst of it, He knows why He's come and so He prays for forgiveness. And in the midst of it, He knows the joy that He's seeking in this suffering. And so He offers an expression of that joy to this thief that He absolves. In a sense, makes sense, but even here it's, it's profound and it's mysterious. And yet here maybe is the most wonderful thing. In the middle of all this, this great, historical, profound, central moment in all of human history where Christ is providing the full breadth of the greatness of His salvation, He pauses to meet the simple need of one woman, Mary. Her oldest son is dying on the cross and she'll need someone to provide for her. In the middle of this atoning work, Christ pauses to assign a duty to John. On the cross, He tells John, you're you're to take care of this woman and watch over her as your mother. The world has provided an unending procession of supposed messiahs. They come one after the other, promising benefit to those who are their constituents and follow along them with their claims, and they accept their rule. And as they come, they bring benefits to those constituents, but they crush under their feet others. They bring benefits to one and they crush under the feet others. They meet some immediate need for some and they deny great needs in another part and they explain it's all a part of their political philosophy. It's all what they need to suffer in order to experience some better thing in days ahead. And by the way, so what happens with all these supposed messiahs is we always come, always history, always the major people of the earth around them come holding the short end of the stick as these saviors come by the saviors that the world has to offer. But when the Lord Jesus saves, He answers the deepest need of all human beings. He comes to us and He provides for an understanding of who He is, a recognition of our sins. He opens us up by faith in Him and He forgives us and cleanses us and absolves us and removes all our guilt and restores us into a full relationship with Him. He gives us all of this And yet, in the same breath and in all this, He does not forsake the daily provisions of our lives. When the Lord Jesus taught us to pray, and taught us to pray along the lines of the essential elements of our salvation, forgive us our sins, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. What's more about our salvation than that? Being forgiven of your sins, being delivered from the evil one, salvation. He taught us to pray in that way. He also taught us to pray for our daily needs. He said, actually, why don't you start there? Give us this day our daily bread. And he bundles it up all together in his wonderful and sweet and profound salvation. How how great a Savior is he. He might find you at the end of a wasted life, a wasted journey of just 
continual criminal activity. And if you've not received Jesus as your Savior, that describes your life. And before you received Christ as Savior, that was your life. And still, God loves us and reveals himself to us and would bring us to a full and complete forgiveness and cleansing. And having found us wherever we were, having forgiven us and washed us and cleansed us, he goes on providing for us, even our basic needs, out of the fullness of the salvation from the cross as he looks out to us. How wonderful. Let's bow our heads. Here's what we might say. Lord Jesus, continue still to intercede for me. Lord Jesus, let me join you in that work, interceding for others, O oh God, that they might come to know you and the truth and that you might reveal yourself to them. O oh God, use my words, use my witness, use my life. Oh, bring them to that certain understanding of who you are and their own condition and their need so that they might find forgiveness. Oh, Jesus, never let me forget what you have done for me as well. And Jesus, as you've forgiven me, bring to me continually that forgiveness that sustains me in the relationship with you and walking right before you. Continue to show me my need of you day in and day out. Let the fountain remain open for me that I might wash myself again and again and come near to you. And Lord Jesus, for my needs, teach me to measure them and know them and to know that you know them as well. You pity me. You consider these things and you provide. God, let me live in trust in you, not only for great things and bold things, but the faith that you've given me to trust in you for salvation, find expression, confidence, in contentment, and waiting upon you for my daily needs and the needs of those around me. I pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen.